morning, of which there are two. The first comes from Exodus chapter 40, beginning at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. And from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the word. Let's begin with a word of prayer. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant us to live in harmony with one another, so that together with one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Firstly, it's a privilege to be asked to stand in for Joel. And uh, no matter how humble or no matter how grand our circumstances, it is actually life's greatest privilege to be asked to speak of the all-surpassing excellence of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. So this morning, um, I'd like to explore a lovely theme which is relevant to the Advent season we are now approaching and our theme is the glory of the Lord. For those of us raised in Anglican liturgical tradition, a passage from Isaiah is very familiar to us all. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. As a young believer, there were times when some opponent of scripture would raise a difficult question that would unsettle me for a time, and one of those questions that is meant to dismantle all of God's revelation to mankind came from the very first verses of the book of Genesis. How, it would be asked, could there be light on the first day of creation when the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day? Well, to this I had no answer until I read in the book of Revelation the description of the New Jerusalem 
where in chapter 21 it is written, and the city has no need of sun or moon. For the glory of the Lord is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by that light the nations walk. So we learn from this passage that the glory of the Lord manifests itself as light. And this should not surprise us, for the scripture teaches that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Probably for most of us, the most graphic example of a manifestation of God's glory was what the ancient rabbis referred to as the Shekinah glory, the pillar of fire and cloud that led the Israelites in their 40 years of wandering, which we heard of in our first reading. Many of us will also remember, even from our Sunday school days, Moses on the mountain when he asked God if he could see his glory. Again, in Exodus, God said to Moses, sorry, God said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand. Many of us will know songs written about that very issue. So when the scripture speaks of the glory of the Lord, they are describing a manifestation of his eternal splendor and majesty. They're not speaking of God himself. It is a physical manifestation as an assurance, an assurity, and a demonstration of his presence and his protection. The glory of the Lord most commonly manifested itself in ancient times as fire, cloud, or light. And it must be considered as only the smallest portion of God's inexpressible radiance, for God told Moses that no man could see his glory and live. And Solomon said at the dedication of the great temple, Behold, heaven, and even the highest heaven, cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. After the crisis in the wilderness when the people made the golden calf, upon discovering what they had done, Moses interceded in prayer for the nation and he said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here for what else will distinguish me and your people from all other peoples on the face of the earth? And when God commanded the Hebrews to build the tabernacle, his reason was clearly stated. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. From the very beginning, it was the supreme desire of God to dwell amongst his people. The ancient Jewish word Shekinah means to dwell, to Shekinah amongst his people. And so when the tabernacle was completed at the end of Exodus, we read these words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It is, of course, impossible for us to imagine what an astonishing experience this must have been 
for the people to witness. Moses asks in the book of Deuteronomy, Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day that God created human beings on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, has anything so great ever happened, or has anything like this ever been heard of? Some 400 years later, God gave King David and his son Solomon permission to build the great temple. And on the day of the temple's dedication, we read that when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down, and the glory of the Lord, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and worshipped. But God had given Solomon a stern warning that should he prove unfaithful to his statutes and commands and lead the nation astray after false gods, he would turn the temple into rubble and drive them from their land. Many of us know that this is exactly what happened. And against the continual warnings of faithful prophets, the nation was intractably unfaithful. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God said that because of the wickedness of King Manasseh, I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Eventually, the armies of the Assyrians and the Babylonians came destroying everything, including the temple, and the people were taken into exile, most never to return. Tragically, the great prophet Ezekiel, who was among those captured and taken to Babylon, in chapter 8 to chapter 11 of his prophecies, he sees a vision of the glory of the Lord departing Solomon's temple and abandoning the city before it was destroyed. Without God dwelling amongst them, the city was defenceless, and consequently, this is the last we read of the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses had warned the nation centuries before Ezekiel's time that such a catastrophe would occur, and Ezekiel was intimately familiar with the books of Moses. When, after the appointed 70 years of exile, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, people returned, the city and its walls were rebuilt. The temple was also rebuilt, but it was a mere shadow of Solomon's magnificent structure, and tragically for the nation, the glory of the Lord did not return. From the ministries of the prophets Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, Israel was without demonstration of God's presence and protection for a period of over 400 years. In all that time, they never heard the voice of a prophet. And those years are generally referred to by historians as the silent years. But... God had made extraordinary promises to his people and notwithstanding the tragedy of the past, one of those promises was 
that unto them a child would be born and a son would be given. And when we enter the New Testament, after such a long and protracted silence, we encounter documents filled with inexpressible hope. We have angels visiting people. We have visions. We have men travelling great distances from the east. We have women and old men prophesying and young women singing beautiful songs in praise to God for his gracious favour. And then we have the shepherds and the heavenly choir. And we read, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around. And they were terrified. This astonishing splendor and the wonder of this encounter cannot be exaggerated. This appearance of the glory of the Lord is the first occasion since Ezekiel saw it leave the great temple and the city 500 years before. It was the supreme expression of God's imprimatur upon the event that the angel had proclaimed. To you this day, in the city of David, a saviour is born. And on this occasion, it was celebrated by two divinely sanctioned events, the return of the glory of the Lord for the first time and then also since, since it left his, uh, Solomon's temple. And secondly, we hear for the first time about the angel's choir. The only other time in scripture when the angel's choir is mentioned is in the book of Job, where Job says, when God laid the foundations of the earth, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These are astonishing events. And while the Jewish high priest and all his dignitaries and the intellectual and social elite of Jerusalem were asleep in their beds, oblivious to the event that was unfolding, it was to a few of the common stock the lowly shepherds, that such a wondrous revelation was given. And Mary sang, He has put down the mighty from their seats and hath exalted the humble and the meek. The great prophet Isaiah records the following words of God the Father speaking about his son, my Redeemer. He says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And the Apostle John begins his gospel by saying, the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And Matthew quotes again from Isaiah saying, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and for those who sit in the regions of the shadow of death, light has dawned. The Apostle Paul tells us in his Philippian epistle that the Lord Jesus forsook his glory and took upon himself the form of a servant. And yet, 
we have a record of a day when Peter, James and John were privileged to witness his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle Luke records the event this way. He says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his countenance was altered, and his raiment became dazzling white, and they saw his glory, and a cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And later in his life after the resurrection, in recalling this very event, the Apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard this voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. In reading these accounts, we can discern that the glory of the Lord was not God himself nor the Lord Jesus, but a manifestation of their glory. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was a brilliant light or radiance and an overshadowing cloud, just as Moses had experienced 1,400 years before when his face shone with dazzling light so much so the people were afraid and he had to cover his face with a veil. When the Apostle John saw the resurrected Saviour in Revelation chapter 1, he records, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me and said, Fear not. For I am the first and the last and the living one. And the Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Apostle Paul tells us in his first epistle to Timothy that <clears throat> the immortal God dwells in unapproachable light who no man has ever seen or can see. But in recalling the mighty acts of creation, he says to the Corinthians, For it was God who said, light, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Over the centuries, the star of Bethlehem has troubled the sceptical class and numerous endeavours have been undertaken and explanations given as to what this celestial phenomena could have been. Stars and comets and meteors do not travel east and west and then change direction and go north and south and then stop and hover over a little village and over a little hamlet where the Saviour was. From Holy Scripture, the most compelling evidence is that the wise men were guided by what scripture calls his star. We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. A brilliant radiance which they followed and it guided them to the very place of the Saviour's abode as indeed it guided the Israelites through the desert wanderings all those centuries before. 
At times I try to imagine a frail old man, bent and withered with age, who carried in his heart a promise from God that he would not die before he saw the Saviour. Scripture makes demands upon our imagination. And on a day of destiny, as Simeon constantly watched and waited amid those enormous porticos of the temple, a young woman and her husband happened to be passing by to present their offering as prescribed by Moses for the birth of their firstborn son. And as they walked past this old man, the Holy Spirit spoke to him in his heart and said to him, this child is the one. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one I promised you. And Luke tells us that he took up the Christ child in his arms and spoke those immortal words which all of us who were brought up on the 1662 prayer book know off by heart. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes hath seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. In the 12th chapter of John, before the Last Supper, we learn that Philip and Andrew came to Jesus with the news that some Greeks sought to see him. And Jesus' response was, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing by heard it and they said that it thundered. Jesus was speaking of his crucifixion. And when Judas left the upper room to betray his Lord, Jesus said in the company of the eleven, Now is the Son of Man glorified and in him God is glorified. And so we learn from Christ's own words that he was speaking of the cross. In a future age, in a way we cannot possibly understand, the nations shall walk by the light of the glory of the Lord. But the cross is the most superb gesture of God towards our fallen race and the supreme demonstration of God's glory. To the unbelieving world, such things are utter foolishness. The supreme demonstration of God's glory will not be found in spectacular demonstrations of divine power on Mount Sinai amid thunder and cloud and fire or in the wilderness or hovering over Solomon's temple or in the Holy of Holies above the cherubim with their outstretched golden wings. No, the glory of the Lord will be found at Calvary, where the Son of God, in unexampled love, divested himself of all his eternal glory and willingly gave his life on an instrument of torture for a thankless world, 
who traded him for 30 pieces of silver and a murderer named Barabbas. The Apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed. The Apostle Paul said, Far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of Christ. And of this same Jesus Christ, the writer to the Hebrews said, He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. When on the day of his departure on the Mount of Olives, his disciples saw him taken up from the earth, scripture records that a cloud took him from their sight into heaven. It should not be imagined that this was just any ordinary cloud. And again, when speaking of his future triumphal return to his disciples, he quoted from the book of the prophet Daniel and said, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with great power and glory. Beloved brethren in Christ, the Bible record of the glory of the Lord is a rich theme to be mined, but it is a phenomena no longer present amongst us. For something greater than Moses, greater than the angels and the seraphim, and greater than the tabernacle has come. A helpless babe has been born in Bethlehem to a virgin named Mary. And through him we have an eternal covenant through his death and resurrection, infinitely superior to the old covenant of Moses, which, like his fading glory, has passed away. The glory of the Lord could appear to the ancient Hebrews as it did to the shepherds and in like manner it could be taken away. But we have superior promises from a superior one who has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with mankind and he shall dwell with them and they shall be his people. Before his passion, he spoke to his disciples of the promise of his abiding presence with them when he said that if a man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling place with him. And the apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. All the deepest longings of the souls of mankind through the ages are fully satisfied only in Christ, and all the promises of God find their yes in him. To us who believe, he is altogether lovely. To us who believe, he is precious. For the rest of our lives, at this time every year, we will hear the story of the shepherds in the bag in swathing clothes, lying in a manger, and the universal proclamation of heaven's proffered peace to all mankind. So let us never forget that the appearance of the glory of the Lord on that occasion was God's inexpressible stamp of legitimacy that this was indeed the greatest and most gracious gift of all.
And so as we approach this period of Advent again, let us once again tell the wondrous story and go again even unto Bethlehem with the shepherds to see that these things that have happened amongst us are true. And there, with that great cloud of witnesses which no man can number, from every tribe and nation and people, lay our treasures at his feet and join our voices unto the heavenly choir and worship him. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and remain with us always. Amen.